Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, I can't introduce Cathal Nolan's new book, Mercy, Humanity, and War, any better than he does himself, with these words. This is not a book about war. It is about mercy and humanity. Mercy happens in a microsecond, wrapped inside a surprise moment of mortal danger. It restrains baser instinct and reminds us about higher things. This book shows that mercy limits cruelty in ways laws and honor codes seldom do, because mercy is the highest personal and moral quality any of us achieves. It is above all other virtues, even justice and courage. It is superior to bravery, especially in a soldier. It is the greatest gift we give to those we meet in civilian life who are suffering and for whom it is in our power to aid or harm, greater still when offered to the defenseless in war. Mercy is the grace that happens between those who have a fleeting superiority of physical power and those who cannot save or protect themselves. It is greater than a gift to the helpless and the innocent, for as Shakespeare wrote, it elevates the merciful too. Cathal J. Nolan is Director of International History Institute at the Party School of Global Studies and Professor of History at Boston University. This is his second appearance on the podcast. He was last with us in episode 79 to discuss his, la- his most recent book, or last book, I should say, The Allure of Battle, A History of How Wars Have Been Won and Lost. Cathal Nolan, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for the invitation. So this is um, a beautifully written book. It is a, it is a passionate book. It is, um, it's also an odd book. As you say, there's no sociological theory here, historical theory of mercy and warfare. I was describing it to my wife, who's more philosophically inclined than I, and she said, well, this is like a phenomenological investigation of mercy and warfare, which I guess is right. Um, and that's kind of how we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to go from one of the most captivating things are these 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 um, searingly written anecdotes, which are the beads on the string of the book. Um, the string is very thin, and the beads are very be- uh, very large and prominent. I almost say beautiful, but they're harsh and scary sometimes, as well as beautiful and moving. Um, but I should ask you first a uh, very it's a very personal book, it feels to me. Mm-hmm. It's personal, it's passion. So is this the result of reading a lot about terrible things for decade after decade? Is this, or is this even something deeper than that? Where does this come from? I where think, does, this book, where I, does this book emerge from? I think it's the first thing you said, and um, I'm going to have to try and control myself as we go through this today because I've only given one talk on the book so far because it's coming out, you know, in about two weeks. And it was about a month ago and I gave a a public talk on the book. And to be honest, in the middle of it, I came very close to breaking down. And I think I realized um, subsequently, I think I'm a little traumatized by proxy uh, because like, as you say, you know, you've just, I mean, the previous book I did, it was essentially a survey of, 2000 years of calamity and repetition of error and uh, the same. I mean, it, it just becomes so obvious. And then 
as I was finishing the final draft of this book, I, uh, and I was able to work some of it into the text, um, uh, of course, the Russians go out and do exactly everything that I said in the previous book, which is, you know, short war delusion, we'll take Kiev in three days, we'll surround it, get bogged down in a long war, and then both sides, the Russians more than the Ukrainians, but both sides begin to subside into depravity. Um, and uh, that is just the history of war. So after I finished the last book, uh, partly because my students, you know, told me, um, it was too depressing. <laughs> you know, I went out looking for mercy, uh, looking for, you know, humanity uh, in war. And yes, I found some, but a lot less than I was hoping, uh, a lot less. Um, but I do think um, the, the, the stories, I'm not sure what they mean in a larger sense. I'm not sure. That's why the book is in a sense without a thesis. Um, it's um, because I'm not sure what the thesis should be. And I don't really want to say what I suspect uh, my conclusions when I was writing the conclusions and you're sort of forced to stop dealing with the individual stories and deal with the overall arching meaning of the book. And kind of the what I came up with is that, I, I, and I, I really was not hoping this was the case, I was hoping that we could discover paths to mercy, paths to humanity that would then be replicable and teachable and uh, added to officer training and soldier training and international legal codes and all the rest of it. And I think what the core truth is, is that when mercy occurs on the battlefield, the person that exhibits it brought it there with them individually. Um, it's that's why I did eventually write the book from uh, quite consciously and deliberately and looking for examples that showed that both cruelty and mercy can occur in any uniform. Even the most vile of uniforms uh, will sometimes have within them uh, an individual who, for whatever reason, brought mercy to the battlefield, humanity to well, the that, battlefield. Yeah. That absolutely key to the book. And in fact, most of the anecdotes I've chosen, I deliberately chose from from. People, I'm not saying even good men, but most of them are merciful men and one or two women in sometimes the worst causes. Right. Like the Nazis. I, yeah. I, SS uniform. Yeah. 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 Sure. Uh, or, or even, I would even say that they were necessarily merciful men. Some of them are not merciful men. They were stone hard killers like Younger uh, or um, uh, Barclay. Um, but they were merciful moments. Uh, so that even someone like Younger, whom I know we'll talk about later, uh, who celebrated uh, the war as shaping his personal manhood and that of his entire generation. He was surprised, and he couldn't actually explain this moment of mercy that he exhibited to a wounded British officer. He came across it. Let's let's talk. Let's talk about that because sure. uh, you, uh, you you early on in the book you make the contrast between uh, Eric Maria Remark, who you know all quiet on the Western Front, which I read in what my university called History Four. <laughs> that was sort of our like you know Western Civ uh, right. survey, and that was like dark. We all quiet on the Western Front, darkness at noon. We had excellent. We had, uh, now I realize what excellent reading we did in, in, yeah. in, in that. that stays with you. Service. You know it when it stays yeah, with you decades later and suddenly yeah, you find exactly. yourself referencing things and you go, God, you know, I thought I had a lousy education and that was pretty good. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was as close as Johns Hopkins ever got to the liberal arts. Well, I mean, That's you talk about the writing, the writing in this book. I have to say I didn't get it from training as an historian. 
uh, because yeah. modern history is increasingly written like stereo instructions for an IKEA assembly kit. You know, um, <laughs> so I got it from being an undergraduate and studying. I think I got the moral interest from studying philosophy, and I got the literary style insofar as that's there from you know being an English major, which you know it's about yeah. my second or third year. I was, am I going to be a history major or an English major kind of thing? And then right. But so Remark yeah. is the person that we see as telling us the story of the German experience of the First World of the of the Great War. Because increasingly, I'm insisting on calling it the Great War. Yes, I agree. The British term, yeah, yeah, the old British term. Um, that is not the person who spoke to Germans about the German experience. Remark is famously banned by the Nazis. But even I think post World War II, Ernst Jünger is in some ways the the prose poet of the first of the great war he's truer he's truer yeah uh yeah. there's and i'm not happy to say that because his book uh, is no, hard and brutal I, I, and uh yeah. you know there's a savagery to it and an endorsement it's very 20th century i mean it is an acceptance and he's, and he's a, and he's a it's a terrible person. I mean, I was, yeah. I was reading his. I was looking through his Weird diaries guy. of the second of the second world, the Second World War. Um, you know, when he served in Paris. You know, you know, he's just ugh. became a but, mescaline addict, and uh, yeah. you know, I mean, he's like a really strange. I mean, and when I say, I think he was a mescaline addict in his like fifties or sixties. He lived yeah. a long uh, life. Never again wrote another book Lit about war. He wrote that book and he Lit walked away. He lived forever. Yeah, ninety five or something like that. It was a long, yeah. a long, long, long time. Um, so what? So here, but here's a guy who valorizes the brutality of the trenches, killing even, um, yeah. and the killing. Yeah. Um, so there's that moment in Remark where he's killing a Frenchman with his sharpened entrenching tool, um, and then he. This is I haven't read the book since I was nineteen, so this is. But stuck you, with you're on the key moment. Movie. It's the key moment of the book. Yeah. yeah. The key moment, and he and then he goes through his pockets yeah. and realizes this was a human being, wife, child, all the rest of that stuff. Younger tells stuff like that, as I understand it. It was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I've killed a human being. Yeah, uh, I mean, he reveled in it. He ordered, uh, 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 he talked uh, matter-of-factly uh, the truth that other people all hid, including in officials. And, and all soldiers did this. I mean, you really couldn't take, prisoners unless you're on a prisoner capturing mission going across no man's land to take a, do a trench raid and if you got into the other guy's trench and your purpose was to take a prisoner for interrogation because some higher up wanted to interrogate somebody as if it made a difference to your sector of the trench um you know you had to kill everybody else in the trench around them i mean there was just you you couldn't leave them behind because they shoot you in the back as you were crossed over if your prisoner you know slowed you down or stumbled you shot him and left him in a you know and on and on and on and younger talks about that frankly everybody did it you had to do that that was the way you took a prisoner uh, across no man's land uh, and so on. But then there was this remarkable occasion where he he, he was on, on his own. He wasn't didn't have any of his troops with him. I don't know why he was on his own in his own. Maybe the others were just 50 yards away or something like that. But he was on his own. And he comes into a sort of, you know, a wet crater and there's a wounded British officer, which he discovers he's an officer, as you know, because he's he puts his hand in and he's searching him. He takes his pistol away and then uh, he searches him and he finds his officer's papers and so forth. And he's going to do what he usually does, which is pull out his his pistol and shoot the man in the head uh, and then move on without any qualms or regrets or whatsoever. And uh, the Brit uh, reaches into his pocket and pulls out a family photograph. Um, and suddenly in a flash, 
Younger sees him not as a British officer, not as the hated enemy, not as the object in between him and getting back to the safety of his trench, but as a father. Uh, and, uh, and, and he writes himself, he says he, didn't, he doesn't understand. He never understood why he didn't kill the man, but he's the only man he didn't kill. But then he adds something I think truly haunting. He says, um, of all the men he met in combat, of all the prisoners he, he, he encountered or killed or all the enemy encountered, that one man and that incident haunted him the most. I don't think he uses the word haunted, but it's, it's really what he's saying. It's the one that stayed with him forever. Probably because he couldn't understand it, like he, you know. Uh, and of course, I think what it was is his humanity had been calcified by the war, uh, and for just a moment it cracked, and he remembered maybe the boy, you know, in the sunflower field, or you know, uh, he'd always been a boy like most boys in love with the idea of war, uh, but he had actually gone to, you know, find his uh, and a phrase I absolutely hate in the book I don't like much either his red badge of courage, uh, you know out there yeah you have a, I, I have to say though you have a very strange idea of the red badge of courage do i you, you believe that yeah you yeah I, that is not a novel that encourages people to idolize war right no that's I, that's I, fair I, enough that's fair enough i i it starts I, out yeah. it starts out that way but it ends up with uh yeah all right i'll oh yeah i'll read it again i'll read it again yeah it's, it's been a while uh, like you it's been a while yeah, so it's been a while <laughs> but i that i i that i'm that i'm that i'm sure of okay um fair enough there, there's a there um Speaking of, of people who work for unmerciful men who work for bad causes, uh, I'm very struck in your chapter. This is uh, chapter two on, called Killers, Brigadier Saleh and Lieutenant oh, yeah. General Hussein Alawadi. The Brigadier Saleh thing, they, that brought tears to my eyes. This is the uh, Iraqi uh, general yeah. whose entire yeah. family... So Sorry, uh, this is based on interviews I did with uh, active. Uh, the, the man I interviewed in this particular case was a U.S. Army Ranger who did, uh, I think, two tours in Iraq and three more or four more in Afghanistan. He was at war for you know from when he was twenty till when he he just retired in in, in twenty nineteen, um, just shy of his twenty year you know pension mark, uh, but he couldn't do it anymore. Um, I am happy to say I don't cite him by name. I don't cite any of the interviewees by name, uh, just by rank and date of the interview in the sources, because uh, I think uh, I've just seen and heard too many cases of retaliation uh, when they report on war crimes they saw and so on. But this was different. Mm -hmm. So he was in uh, he was in the headquarters, um, one of the brigade headquarters, divisional headquarters, I think it was, um, in in Iraq. And uh, Salah uh, entire fa Salah had risen high in Saddam Hussein's military, uh, brigadier general. Um, uh, but he had a, and he had a reputation for severe brutality and retaliation, and and it was a deserved reputation he would carry these things out. But he also used that reputation to exhibit an odd, in odd ways to exhibit mercy. So for example, when he got an order to go down from Saddam, this is before the, the, the war began to go down into some area north into the Kurdish area or south into the Shia area um, and suppress uh, local uh, opposition. Um, knowing the reputation he carried with them, he would go in and threaten hellfire uh, and try to get them not to 
you know, stop behaving that way, basically by a deterrent threat of his reputation for severe violence and even cruelty. Um, so that put him on the list of uh, special targets. So when the shock and awe campaign began, he was there um, uh, because in the Iraqi military, it was commonplace to hire your relatives in your command positions, not just because that's the way you also spread the corrupt wealth, but actually primarily at that level, because you couldn't trust anyone else not to kill you. Um, so, uh, the result was when his headquarters was hit, he lost almost his entire family. He lost uncles and nieces, brothers, you know, um, and he just withdrew utterly and completely traumatized. He completely withdrew. Um, but then, uh, as the, as the war went on uh, several years later, uh, he just showed up at the headquarters, uh, one day in his old uniform, uh, and never said a word and observed. And this, this major watched him observing and back and forth. And then one day in perfect English. He addressed the major and said um, uh, that that he saw that what they were doing, what they were trying to do, and the way they fought was basically good, and he thought it would be good for his country. And he came back, um, you know, to serve them. Am I leaving out what touched you? No, I mean it's just it's an amazing moment. I mean, I believe he, but he also expresses the rage and grief. Oh, yeah. But then, but then he's also what he's also drawn to is what he sees. What he saw as a cruel enemy, he realized also was at the same time extending, uh, here's my interpretation, extending more mercy than he believed uh, was possible. Yeah, given, the, given the, the army he had served in for 25 years or whatever it was uh, before, yeah. before this, I mean, given given Saddam and his sons and, and what and what and what they had done, um, and also just the nature of war. I mean, after all, he'd been at war with Iran. He'd been at war, you know, uh, yep. the, 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 the 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 brutality of the Iran Iraq War is something that I think we forget. I mean, it was a sad, yeah, utter savage. Or don't, people people don't even know it happened. Yeah. Um, the, yeah, or um, that we or that we were on Saddam Hussein's side all during that. Yeah, well, I, we were yeah, <laughs> both sides. <laughs> I mean, um, and how many times? How many times have we betrayed the Kurds now? I count at least yeah, three. Yeah. At least three. I think it's a lot more than that. Yeah, because uh, that that was. Uh, but they're kind of in a state I mean, of permanent betrayal by everybody around. Them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if you go back to the Middle Ages, I mean, who hasn't betrayed the Kurds? Oh yeah, Saladin, Saladin, because he was a Kurd. Yeah, but, uh, they're 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 um, uh, benighted by their location. They're like the poles, yeah. you know, the barley caught between the millstones of Germany yeah. and Russia. Yeah, absolutely, they are. What this is a very twentieth century book. Yeah, um, and in many ways, you know, I was I was wondering to myself, could a Roman centurion actually show mercy? I mean, this is we can I refer listeners to a previous podcast. I'll put in the show notes with Tom Holland about his book Dominion. I mean, there's something there's something post Christian about all this. But there's also, um, I mean, when C when Caesar was eliminating twenty to thirty percent of the population of Gaul, I'm I'm not sure that was yeah you know or, in a source, or, but go ahead, but but um, you know Charlemagne killing four thousand Saxons on one day that's that's saying you or know, one of the Holy Roman what was it one yeah. of the Holy Roman empires who blinded ninety nine out of every one hundred Bulgarian Byzantine troops. Empire yeah, right, Basil the right, Second right, Basil the Bulgar Slayer that might also be I and mean, this is a 
Byzantine history class from may, may not ago. be true. That, may not be true. That might not be. That might be something he wanted to people to think. But yeah, it's a pretty. Although the practice idea. of blinding soldiers, oh, yeah. uh, exemplary blinding of soldiers was yeah. Uh, he, the idea of ninety nine out of a hundred just sounds too perfect. But yeah, it does. And leaving the one the hundredth with one eye so they could leave the other on the tether was the idea. Right. And amongst the Byzantine royal family, usually you blind your brothers or your mother. Um, <laughs> the the. Uh, but the but but there's a lot of this is the you know there's tons of fraternization the revolution American Revolution the American Civil War this is commonplace but there isn't the numbers it's part of this has to do with the absolutely massive numbers of people that begin to fight in the First World War oh yeah it has and with the the power of explosives and of long range artillery the fact that you know it's really difficult to arrange a medical truce. When people are firing you from five to ten to fifteen, twenty miles away, I'd put it slightly differently. I think that's absolutely right, but I'd, I'd put it slightly differently. I think it's 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 more and more difficult in modern war to see through to the humanity of the enemy when you can't see the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they're just so far away uh, that they're just a target. I mean, just look at the Ukrainian war, and I certainly understand why they're doing it. It's partly generational, partly pop culture, uh, but partly it's just the normal, necessary dehumanization of the humanity of the other side so that you can kill them. So the Ukrainians refer to the Russians as orcs. You know, the, the mindless, um, marauding, uh, non-human creatures from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, it's, um, but that's commonplace. That's why everybody defaults into racist terminology or yeah. you have to come up with some name for the enemy. And then, you know, all of it's, the, all of my colleagues who don't actually study war or read about war at all, get all upset about as if the worst thing that happened, and this is going to be controversial, but the worst thing that happened, they would say in, um, in the second world war is that Americans and Japanese called each other nasty racist names. No, no, no. <laughs> It's the hate that matters, not the language. It's what, but they're so focused on language as opposed to what really matters, which is yeah. hate. And by the war, wait, the, the war didn't come out of hate. The hate comes out of the war, which is yeah. why we should avoid these damn things. Um, yeah, it's uh, that I, I, I read that when I was doing the American history survey, you know, reading the books on the racialization of the Pacific War. But then quickly doing a quick Google search and seeing the sort of posters that Soviets did about the Germans. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, anything can be racialized. Any, any Anybody can become the other. You can make Ukrainians, uh, can make Russians whose language is, by our perspective, barely different. Right. Um, they, can, they can turn them into orcs. You can, right. everyone can play this game. And I can show you, and you've probably seen them. There's a couple of famous posters that the British did uh, during the First World War. Uh, so you have this gorilla with a helmet with a yep. pickle hob on it, and he's got an axe, and he's about to butcher, literally butcher, um, a, a naked uh, young female, like she's got wings, which permits you to make, because she's got wings and she's an angel, you can show her naked. That's really what, where that's coming from. Um, there's, there's, and, and, a, there's a perfect image for the uh, show notes. Yeah, it's um, it's it's um, it's social Darwinism. It, the, the world, the air was full of social Darwinism. So everybody, if you want to say the other guy's subhuman, you reduce them into a monkey man. Um, and uh, this was done. The Americans portrayed the Japanese as sort of monkey men, and the Japanese portrayed the British as like pig men with with swine snouts and um, and, and so Soviets, forth. It's dehumanization. Soviets do this. 
Soviets did the same thing with Germans. I guess that they're capitalist pigs. I guess that helps. I would say, uh, actually, there's, there's actually a glimmer of, of hope in all of that because it means that we're required to dehumanize the enemy to get otherwise yeah. normal people to do an utterly abnormal thing that is forbidden and which most men will not do, which is to kill. You have to overcome the taboo against killing, the taboo that are, we, we learn in every society and may even be instinctive. Uh, against 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 killing, uh, you have to you have to be trained to do that. You have to be socialized to do that. You have to be propagandized into do that, and you have to believe it's necessary. Um, and, and all of that does that. We mentioned um, that we're going. We're starting to drag out. I need to I need to move along here. Sure. Uh, but let's talk. Move to the Hürgenwald, where right, um, which is um, where Americans are definitely lions led by a donkey, Courtney Hodges. Yeah. Uh, whose idea is basically of offensive action is a headbutt. Um, and, and serial headbutts, one after the other after the other, division one after is, division sent in. One, one is never enough. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, let's talk about Leutnant Friedrich Langfeld. Yes, this is a young uh, German lieutenant. This is in the Hürtgenwald uh, fight, uh, this dreadful uh, fight in the Hürtgenwald. Uh, that just precedes the uh, the fight in the Ardennes, the Battle of the Bulge, as Americans know it, um, in which uh, as, uh, the Americans were so ineptly led uh, that they they went in serial assaults, division after division after division. They took appalling casualties over something like twenty square miles of forests and hills and no roads and. Um, the Germans were dug in behind earthen and, 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 and heavy log entrenchments. Tanks were buried and you know, blasting away at the Americans. It was appalling. The fighting was often hand to hand. And in this one little area of forest, let's say over a frontage of about maybe 500 yards under the command of this lieutenant, um, the Germans were taking very heavy casualties the night before. Uh, the Americans had made uh, a heavy, the day before, uh, the Americans had made a heavy assault, which had been repulsed uh, with loss of American casualties. The Americans had pulled back, taking their wounded with them, but they left one man behind. They didn't hear him or didn't see him in the dark or for whatever reason. Um, and this wounded American uh, was lying in actually the middle of a small minefield, uh, calling for help. Um, the only way it can really be explained is that the Americans had pulled back so far that the American medics couldn't hear him uh, calling out. Um, there's no other reason to think why they would not have gone to get him. The Germans could hear him clearly calling, and this went on for about nine hours, calling for help, this wounded man growing fainter and fainter. Langfeld sent out orders uh, that should the Americans, as they expected, the American medics appear, no one was to fire upon them. They were to be allowed to recover this man and, and go. Um, uh, and then the Germans all waited. And as, as the man's cry sort of cut into their souls, if you will, um, they wanted the medics to come and get him, but they never showed up. So finally, Langfield said, we're going to go get him ourselves. And he led a uh, small rescue party out. They tied bits of white cloth to uh, pine tree branches or a couple to the ends of rifles. They brought a stretcher and they went out to get this American who was a couple of hundred to 300 yards uh, further away. And just before they arrived, uh, Langfield himself, the young lieutenant, I think he was 24 years old, 23, I think he was 23 years old. Uh, he made a fatal misstep, literally fatal misstep. He stepped on a landmine. Uh, it didn't kill him. 
uh, I think I say in the book, uh, the inanimate is incapable of showing mercy. Uh, the landmine did not kill him. He was perforated. Uh, I think he lost half a foot and he was multiple perforations. His gut was perforated. His legs were perforated. He was in extreme pain. And it was pretty obvious to his men that he was mortally wounded, but he wasn't dead yet. So they put him on the stretcher uh, and carried him back to an aid station, another aid station. Long and the short of it was he took about another eight or nine hours and he died. Um, this story was not known at the time uh, to the Americans opposite, but when they overran the German position a few days later and took a couple of the men who had been on the rescue party prisoner, uh, they told them about this and where the body was and so forth. Um, and 50 years later, in 1994, 50 years later, the American uh, who had uh, commanded at the, at the time, I don't know what his rank was at the time, but when he when he organized this, I think he, uh, I have to go, I remember Frank, but he'd he was, uh, I, I, he was, I have the colonel. I, yep. He was a colonel at the time. I've got the, the notes right. uh, here. And he, um, he, by that time he was a major general retired, John Ruggles. That's it. Yeah. He rose to and major he had, general. He had been right. Lieutenant Colonel of the 22nd infantry regiment. That was, I guess, there his, his regiment that had been fighting for that position. Uh, right. And, and, and he, he organized, sorry, go ahead. He organizes veterans of the 22nd regiment to go and, create a memorial for a the, memorial to this German soldier. And what's yeah. notable is this is in 94. So uh, this is the 50th anniversary. There are major American memorials in Normandy, uh, in the Ardennes for the Battle of the Bulge. There's none in the Hurtgen Forest, which also tells you something. Uh, no army celebrates its losses uh, and even really wants to remember them that well. But so he went there where he had lost men and um, and he had they had learned the story and had investigated the story of this young German officer who gave his life. Um, and... Uh, they erected a memorial. Uh, you can find this on the internet uh, if you if you if you search Langfeld. Uh, I think it's actually in Wikipedia now. Um, and there's it's a memorial that 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 states what happened basically. And um, uh, what's remarkable about it is this was a memorial to a German soldier in Falgrau in Hitler's army, erected by Americans at a time when there were almost no memorials to any German soldiers inside Germany at all, because, of course, it's highly problematic to have put up memorials. Um, it's in the German graveyard, in the German military cemetery, uh, in, in the Hurtgen Forest, uh, and so on. But how, um, how touched by humanity must you be to 50 years later, when you're in your gray hairs and probably infirm, organize this, raise the money, go across and have a dedication ceremony where some of the Germans who had they had captured who were in the rescue party also attended. All, all, all forgiven, all forgiven on both sides. Let's stay in Herkenwald and talk about medics. Yeah. Um, you have several stories from Herkenwald. But one of the appalling things for people to realize is how the lack of organized medical attention through most of the human history of warfare. <laughs> um, and again, it, partly it's to do with numbers. Um, and, uh, but as armies are bigger and more industrialized, I mean, there's Napoleonic armies are pretty damn big too. 
but it's not as if there was a sophisticated sort of medic system in the, in the Napoleonic armies. No, uh, but the French were the first to do it. The French they, were the first to do it, to bring medics out to the field and kind of have an ambulance corps yeah. and, and actually try and save wounded in the field of battle, not just yeah. leave them lying there. Just because, I mean, because when you're up to armies of hundreds of thousands, all of oh, a sudden yeah. it becomes a problem as opposed to when you've got 20,000 on either side. It's, you know, and, and, and the idea of also not, uh, releasing soldiers to carry back a wounded comrade. Right. That be- that becomes a thing. That would have been perfectly Reduces your attack momentum. And Reduces so forth, your yeah. attack momentum. Also, that becomes a thing. Um, so, uh, so, so medics are suddenly uh, important in, in warfare. And you describe, uh, and many of these stories of mercy, um, well, one of them you describe, Albert Bernd. Uh This is actually ne- outside the Herkenwald, but near Cologne in November 1944. Um and this is this is a medical this is a medical truce. Could you tell that story? Oh, there's so many of the medical truces in there. I'm not sure I can. Yeah, uh, remember this one. Um, is this the man who was the surgeon? I can't. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah uh, I don't recall the details right now. Okay. I'm sorry. We'll, I, they're we'll they're mixing in my head. But but the head, yeah. so uh, the I guess what's extraordinary. To me, is is the um, well? You tell. Let me. Let me so there are a lot of medical stories. Let me. Let me start over again. Uh, three. Sure. I, mean, I got to clear my head here. Three, two, one. So, what would be um, horrifying to many um, modern readers is to realize how, throughout the history of human warfare, there's been very little organized medical attention on the battlefield. You give some examples from the Ming armies, the Ottoman Janissaries. It's not, there's certainly uh, military medicine. I mean, the Greeks practice it, but um, it's not until armies get really, really big that there are organized medical corps. And also there becomes, um, I, I would imagine, there becomes the idea that the attack must go on. You can't have a buddy taking away a wounded a comrade off the battlefield that soldier must stay on the battlefield and press the attack is that in some armies more than others because some some armies were brutal like that absolutely advance under all circumstances do not stop to recover the wounded uh, the japanese had orders that if the invasion came of the home islands in 45 and 46 that's what they were they were actually under orders not to rescue their own wounded uh but but the, what mitigates against that or militates against that is um the other military need, and I'm not saying that's necessarily merciful from the point of view of headquarters, it's a kind of a military necessity, which is to sustain the morale of the army. And so you're balancing, yes, I need to have attack momentum, but no, we can't be abandoning wounded on the battlefield because it'll corrode morale and overall that deteriorates the army uh, over the next battle and the next battle and the next battle. The general practice is simply, I mean, I if men are under fire and they're advancing and they're under fire, I mean, they're not going to pause necessarily and pick up and start dragging people back. The combat troops keep pushing in the hope and expectation that coming behind them are these remarkably brave, usually unarmed men. Uh, and it's not just medics, it's also the orderlies uh, who, go, who go with them, the stretcher bearers. Um, and, and they'll get Joe and they'll get Fred and they'll get Hans and they'll get Ivan, uh, you know, behind me. Um, or we'll go back later after we finish the mission. Yeah. You're in a combat and, and, mission. You're in a combat mission. So, and we should say, I mean, and some of the and some of the people that first do this are actually this is the first 
women appearing on probably the battlefields yeah. in substantial numbers for the first time in, in human history, uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, well, they, they had been there, but informally, like camp followers in the Middle Ages and, right. you know, who would be cooks and nurses and prostitutes. I mean, there were large numbers that followed the armies Sar- when the armies And were sergeant's right. wives, so let's keep but it clean. Uni- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, well, often what happened was uh, the, the, the man who's, who got killed, his widow became a prostitute, and uh, the prostitute would actually want to marry a soldier so that she could be supported by wages. I mean, this is, um, that's a sad truth of the of the... Once you've just burned out the villages, the men have to go to war and the women have to follow uh, right. in, in many cases. But anyway, uh, but it changes in the second half of the 19th century. And this is the, the, the known importance of Florence Nightingale, although she was not so much the angel as she's made out to have been. She was, she, was, uh, she, was, she was a tough lady. Let's just. Yeah, she, yeah she was, well, but, but there were, I mean, she also sort of had some pretty backward medical ideas. She didn't well, believe in the germ. Th- but then a lot of people did at the I, time. No one believed in the germ theory. That's a few, pe- but, but it was. But poor it was Pestalozzi committed suicide, right. I think it was. I mean, yeah, it was new. It, yeah. was, it was new uh, and so on. More to, to criticize her more was she would be, to use the pop psychology term of today, she was something of a control freak. Uh, and she did not like anyone else in her territory. Right. So other women were arriving that she didn't control and she objected to their presence and she wouldn't cooperate with them or help them in or acknowledge them in any way, particularly orders of Catholic nuns from France and Ireland and places like that. And Sisters of Mercy, for example, who are also yes. important on the, on the American Civil War battlefield. And it's Huge. not just not just Clara Barton, although as we talked about in my recent conversation with Carol Adrian, um, you know, speaking of medics, speaking on the battlefield, Clara Barton's that her it's a society for the recovery of soldiers. I forget what the actual name yeah, of it is. She's yeah. going out into the battlefield after the battlefield going amongst the body parts, going amongst the, looking for anyone who's still she alive. She was amazing. It's she an incredible, amazing. it's an incredible, talk about yeah, acting. But then she was a surgeon. I mean, it's, yeah. she wasn't a nurse. She was a surgeon. Actually, What's also surgeon. astonishing about her, she was also a spy. Yeah. <laughs> she, <laughs> she got captured by the Confederates, um, probably rightly, because, you know, she was actually spying. And then she spied when she was there. And then she was, there was an officer, a medical officer exchange between the Confederates and the, and she was returned along with 15 or I kept 16 or 17 other Union doctors and so on. But like, because she was female, she was not allowed to actually register as a Union Army surgeon officially. So she volunteered and served in the hospitals, but then her surgical skill became so obvious that she she, she was allowed to operate, and uh, I may have some of, uh, of those details wrong, but she was an absolutely remarkable, uh, remarkable person who, after the war, was persecuted and arrested several times for not wearing proper female attire. She was out there, as you said, body parts, blood, guts, saving lives, and the country worried more about her petticoats. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Here's another, another thing that... Um... Prisoners are also sort of a modern invention. We talked about the Ernst mm. Junger um, and the the habit that people had when they started to collect lots and lots of prisoners. All of a sudden, you've got you've got people behind your with amongst you who can pick up guns and perhaps and kill you. So you kill them. Now, slave societies are based on the fact that prisoners of war become slaves. That's been the basis of slavery and. Since mm-hmm. time immemorial, that's where Greeks got their, where Rome got lots and lots of slaves. Once you're captured in war, you're a slave. I'll, um, I'll take it further than that. That there's yeah, the three main lucky. targets. The three main targets historically for one of the way, reasons so many wars were fought, especially along frontiers, was to raid for slaves, cattle, 
and women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you're right. Prisoners became slaves. I mean, it was simply expected. So the idea um, of POW you, camps is a very strange modern. The idea of prisoner rights. I mean, there, rights, I mean yeah. there, there was some kind of informal just war theory, but it was mostly not observed. Uh, the actual legal prisoner rights, as you, I'm sure you know, really dates only to after the Crimean War. So it's the second half of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, the first of the Geneva, so-called Geneva Red Cross Conventions, um, uh, 1856, I want to say. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, and then you have to actually uh, overcome, uh, and this is where I think uh, the, 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 the will be an eternal conflict between lawyers and soldiers, uh, necessarily, uh, and between law enforcement in peacetime and law writing in peacetime and law enforcement in war, wartime, because um, you have to overcome a far more fundamental psychology of self-preservation uh, and also, I think, something that we do not properly recognize because it makes us uncomfortable to discuss, but the rising intensity of hate that comes with war, that is generated by war. And then we turn around, having sit, sat in a, in, a, in a law school uh, seminar room or, or on the bench and having written a law or drafted a law, and, and we say that soldiers should do things that are utterly we're not capable of doing as a, as a human being, which is to at one moment full of rage and adrenaline and hate and, and, and blindness where you can only see, you know, the 50 feet in front of you and all the rest of it. And we're supposed to stop because the man put his hands up and so on. And yeah, we do. And it sometimes happens and all of the rest of it. But one of the things I like about the opening sequence of Saving Private Ryan is when they get to the top of the ridge and they're, the, the Polish soldiers are approaching and they've got their hands up and they shoot them anyway. And the reason I like that is because it's real. That happens. Um, and it was, I think, one of the first times American audiences had seen American soldiers do that um, on film and, and sort of be faced with um, uh, the, the true realities of war. And one of my major complaints, of, if I finish this rant, um, is that uh, I, I really uh, object uh, to the blue dot censorship of the news networks and the fact that they won't show uh, the actual violence of war. You want to stop war. You want to make at least reduce its in, its frequency. Show it. Show the real stuff. Show the absolute carnage. Stop censoring this so that everybody. Can, I mean, if you're watching uh, Ukrainian war videos on Reddit, I, just, I don't I don't join Reddit, but I monitor this one channel because it shows these videos. And one of the most outrageous things is it's, this is a very pro-Ukraine channel and sometimes they show the videos just uncut you hear the soldiers talking and you hear the weapons firing and so on and that's what you really want to see uncut video like this but most of them have been turned into music videos by some punk in Birmingham uh, either Britain or Alabama I don't care which Birmingham right um, and they're and I mean they're in their, they're literally in their mother's basement turning these things into music videos and and if you make the mistake of actually looking in the comment section I mean they're actually referring to video games they've played and oh this reminds me of the scene in such and such and such and such it's all a game uh, and it wouldn't be a game if you were to actually show uh, what a high velocity shell does to a to a human body um, and the high velocity, high explosive. All right. I, a little bit more about prisoners. Um, you discuss at length in the chapter on prisoners, uh, the Japanese tr cruelty to prisoners, um, that dates far back beyond world war two, back to the, the Sino Japanese wars. I mean, heck we could even say it goes back to the Japanese wars within Japan, but, 
Uh, and you tell a very moving story about Takeshi Nagase, who was a Kempeitai interrogator, who eventually sought the forgiveness of people that he had tortured. Mm-hmm. Uh, and amazingly enough, they gave it to him, which is okay. That's pretty, it's a, an amazing story. But why, I mean, this is my knowledge of all this is based on the bridge over the River Kwai. So why did, why did the Japanese have this attitude towards prisoners? Did they really, was this the sort of this Neo Bushido crap that they had invented in the 1890s that any prisoner was dishonorable? Was this because they didn't want Japanese soldiers to surrender? Was this an example to Japanese soldiers? I think it's all of those things. Uh, and I'm really happy that you pointed out that Bushido is a load of crap. I mean, there was a Bushido tradition in Japan, but it was cultural and poetic and uh, and, 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 and um, so on. But this, this new Bushido this, this, that everybody this, cites, it's invented. It's invented. It's invented by the Meiji state in order to try and they're trying to get uh, uh, classes, social classes, uh, for, to, to use the inappropriate term, but working class, middle class, Jap- peasants in Japan to behave with warrior spirits. So they imbue them with the idea of the Bushido code of the warrior and so on. It's just made up, just like the imperial divinity is essentially made up out of a very soft cultural cultural trend and, and all the rest of that. Um, so there's a hardening of the state, a militarization of all of Japanese, all of the things that, that, that you said, uh, trying to encourage the Japanese to fight more ferociously. Part of that is because the Japanese at the top actually realize they can't win the wars against these enemies they're taking on. They're taking on enemies that are industrially and population-wise and uh, just uh, so much more powerful than them. Uh, look who do they fight, the Chinese. Everyone expects them to lose. They they, they win a partial success. The Russians, everyone expects them to lose. They at least fight to a stalemate, uh, if not a, a marginal victory. Um, and then they take on, uh, you know, multiple empires at once, the 1930s and 40s. Um, so that's that's part of it. I also think, uh, though, once again, I come back, I think it's an underwritten theme. Maybe I should do the next book, but I don't think I could manage it. Uh, maybe the next book should be hate, uh, because it's it, that, that is, I think, an underappreciated phenomenon of war how the longer the war goes the 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 deeper and the wider the hate spreads um until you're doing things you never thought was in your capability this is true of individuals as well as uh, entire societies i mean would anyone in london or washington have thought in 1935 that in 1945 we would be deliberately targeting civilian populations in it no it was inconceivable we were going to do precision bombing and we were going to hit factories and and it would be very precise and we and all the rest of that and then the british by the end are actually using the term morale bombing we're obliterating cities to depress morale trying to provoke a social revolution um and then we carry it to vietnam and elsewhere um but uh so i mean hate hate so i think that's a lot a part of it as well the other thing is that the japanese had a series of and i have talked to japanese historians because i have to confess i mean my main area is world war ii and of all the combat god help me i understand the nazis i understand them the japanese are harder to figure out i think they're they're they're, they're so different uh from most other societies in that war uh, they had only just emerged from a kind of a, a semi-feudalism um, 50 years earlier, um, the whole idea of the emperor worship and so on. We understand dictators. We understand totalitarian tyrants. The idea that 
you know, people actually might have believed that the emperor was semi-divine is hard to figure out. The religious component. So I've asked a lot of Japanese historians of Japan about this, and they emphasize it's the religious component is what makes it different, that this was in many ways a religious war. Well, we know from our own contemporary religious wars that there are a few things, few ideologies that inspire hate, like religious hatreds, um, because if God is on your side, the devil's on the other. Uh, and um, it, it almost is that that uh, Manichaean. Um, so there's that. Uh, it's also, again, the hatred and the desire for revenge, I think, is underrated, especially when you're losing. Uh, and so, so many of these atrocities are the Japanese now realize they're bogged down. They, they, the soldiers are still believing the propaganda or not. And I'm not clear how much they actually ever really believed it, but they're brutalized. Um, but the officer corps is beginning to realize they're going to lose, and that means they're going to lose everything. Uh, and so I think there was rising hatred there. And then there was a racism in Japanese uh, policy, uh, it, it actually almost especially toward other Asians. Uh, which is underappreciated in most of the histories of the war, or you read books about race and war in the Pacific or war without mercy. That's the famous one. Um, mm -hmm. And the whole idea is that Americans somehow had anti-Oriental racism from California and Oregon and took it with them to the Pacific. No, the kid from Iowa never met a Japanese. The kid from Yokohama never met an American. They met on places like Guadalcanal and Iwo Jima and so on. Um, and they were both... Uh, absolutely astonished and terrified to be in an alien physical environment and uh, people are trying to kill them and they don't understand anything and they grew to hate each other. It's normal. And, oh, and by the way, they called each other nasty names, which they shouldn't have done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, and also that I mean, I um, just a parenthetical uh, citation. I got uh, behind me in the video, uh, Catholic can see a couple of Marine Corps posters which partly were inspired by um, a neighbor who served on Guadalcanal. Um, and I, uh, he convinced me that I should be a Marine, but I was reading a lot of Richard Tregascus's Guadalcanal Diary, at least the landmark <laughs> books version, which is excellent. And you thought, um, no. <laughs> at, no, no, I, I still did, but I was becoming a historian because I would read right. it and then I would cross examine him about this, if this actually happened at such and such a place. And so was that it was confirmed I, I was, or? He would confirm or he would describe things uh, as best as you can to an eight-year-old boy. Right. Um, Interesting. And, Interesting. But, but um, what he did tell me is that, you know, and I, I kind of, even at eight, I could read between the lines, is the terror of coming upon Japanese dead and not knowing if they still had a grenade. Right. Right. Um I mean, there that were cases where Japanese question. wounded were being operated on by American surgeons, and they grabbed the scalpel and stabbed the surgeon. Yeah. Or they had a grenade. You had to search them, and then you didn't want to search them, so it was just kind of safer right. to shoot them. Um, exactly. You know, uh, and then it, it becomes safer to shoot them, and then that becomes a justification for shooting them because you want to shoot them. Uh, exactly. And so some of the you untold see, the, stories. The spiral, the oh, spiral yeah. is so, so steep. We and, spiral and down so together. We spiral into depravity together. It yeah. happens in every war. Um, not, it doesn't happen to everybody in every war. Certainly not. There are people who try and preserve their their, their decency and so on. And I, I say at one point, I can't remember where in the book, I think this, when I've ever talked, whenever I talk to soldiers and, you, you know, and, and, and they really talk honestly to you, you, you do have the sense, even if they don't say it aloud, and some will say it aloud because I started to ask them when I was working on this book. You know, they really, I think there's a gnawing question in almost every veteran I've ever spoken to. Was I decent? 
Mm-hmm. Was I decent back then? And it's kind of, it's, that's like, it takes a peculiar form in veterans because they were at war, something that, thank God, most of us have not had to go through. But I actually think, as I get, as I'm now an old man, I actually also think that it's just sort of natural to the aging process, that the older you get, the more you look back at your own youth, your own life, and you say, was I decent? Was I a decent young man? Was I decent to women? Was I decent to my children? Was I, you know, I think it's um, a kind of natural retrospective. And I think in soldiers, like so much else, it's accelerated uh, and, uh, you know, to the power of 10 or the power of 100 by the intensity and absolute extraordinary um, uniqueness that's not all that unique. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you read soldier stories and they're all unique and yet they all start to sound the same after a while, almost the same. We, there's tons more to discuss, but we're going to have to wrap this up. Sure. And I want to talk about your conclusions, uh, which in some ways, to, to my mind, goes back to chapter one on heroes, which is meant somewhat ironically. But it's, it's I think you're lamenting uh, that you had no tidy conclusion, but I think your conclusion is very evocative and it shows a direction. Uh, there's one little anecdote that you described mm. from Vietnam and I, I mentioned this briefly in the notes, uh, where a some Marine is about to shoot an old Vietnamese woman because she's there, because his blood is up, because his finger is on the trigger, because it's easy. Who knows why? Right. And NCO, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I thought it was his sergeant or something. Or, but, yeah, anyway, a superior, says, a superior of some form. A superior says, Marines don't do that. Shout you say. He shots him. He doesn't appeal to the Geneva Convention, the rules of war, all the rest of that stuff. But he, in some ways, it's the most fundamental thing that's been drilled into him. Honor. Is that honor. That he's a Marine. Yeah. There are things that Marines do, and there are things that Marines don't do. I could go on a long rant here. I, I don't consider myself a military historian or even a historian of war. I, uh, but, um, you know, I've been around them. Um, and, you know, one of the things that made my teeth grind for decades now, because <laughs> I'm getting mm. older, is the whole, like, the warrior. Yeah. The, the emphasis on warrior. Now, I understand where it came from. I, and this has a lot to do with civil military relations on a very deep level. But to my mind, my the perfect representation of warrior in history is that bronze Hellenic statue, the Dying Gaul. Um, warriors, in the end, are always killed by soldiers. Uh, it's the great and, modern. The great modern shift is from warrior to soldier. But the militaries then thought maybe we went too far. We still need warriors, so we invented special forces. Blah, and blah, 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 what blah, blah. we now see in Iraq and Afghanistan is that in, in the Australian military, the Canadians, the British, yeah. the Americans, this, this it's really the special that. forces that have some problem with the morality of war and this misbehavior in war. Yeah. And I think it goes back to this the, the inculcated ferocity of the idea of being a warrior as opposed to a soldier. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I, because I a soldier, uh, no, no, because that's it. Because what I'm seeing now is a soldier, it's not just the discipline. It's not just the desire of your... Centurion or Decurion in 350, the difference that he wants to go back home and sow the wheat, you know, and have another kid with the wife, which is always a key component of the soldier's mentality versus yep. that of the warrior who just wants the kill. 
just wants the kill or wants display, the, the glory or display. Of the kill, or the I mean, display. You, you yeah. Think of, think of, think of, uh, you know, first nations, native American warriors, uh, look, look on the, on the great plains, the, the whole, the idea of counting coup, you know, where yeah. you, you run up to the top of uh, the little bighorn, the hill at little bighorn and you touch your enemy mm -hmm. with acoustic and then, you know, leave him alive. Uh, it's a, yeah. this is nobody, nobody, uh, no soldier would do that. No soldier would no. do that. It's the warrior trying to demonstrate for uh, the, the acceptance of his peer group, his social group, and to gain his warrior status, which will gain him so much in society if he lives, but he's not likely to live. No. The other thing now I realize is that the soldier has the capacity to show mercy in the way the warrior cannot allow himself to display. Well, you know how the warrior I I, works himself up into sort of a, a, a frenzy, a killing frenzy before he even heads out to combat. The whole ritual of the war paint, and there are variations of it in more modern, I mean, in the current period and so forth. But it's still kind of putting on war paint, the camouflage. It is, very much so. And I think, however, this is where we have to blame ourselves as well and the wider societies because we celebrate the warrior. We celebrate the warrior. In Japan, it's the samurai. I mean, I mean, it's the it's 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 the native brave. It's the special forces. It's the sniper. It's Chris Kyle, for God's sake, who was, uh, you know, frankly, uh, I'll probably get into all kinds of legal trouble if I say what I think of Chris Kyle. But I, I say it in the book. Um, you say it in the book. Yeah. So I mean, uh, but I mean, he was vicious and unthinking and. Um, uh, even murderous. Uh, and I know his job was a sniper, but snipers don't have to be murderous. Um, it depends on, 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 on how you select your targets uh, and so forth. And he was the great, that's in the chapter on heroes, he was the great uh, 21st century hero who replaced soldiers like Audie Murphy uh, and uh, Barkley and uh, Sergeant York um, and so on, because the 21st century wars demanded a new ferocity, a personal one-on-one -on -one kill that we didn't really think of of the old big wars as. Um, I mean, this is a war where Bush is keeping a list in the desk drawer. I don't necessarily disagree with this, and he's striking out the Al-Qaeda names one after one after one. But uh, we're not fighting these wars. Um, uh, the imagery of these wars in the movies and so on um, and the popular culture and perception is we need to have warriors who can go out and match them toe-to-toe, one-on-one, -to -one, special forces, snipers, that, that kind of thing. And there may be an element of truth in that in terms of military uh, operations and tactics. You know, uh, that's fine. My objection is to the armchair warrior, in quotation marks, uh, who celebrates this, who makes it into a music video, uh, who within three hours of some 18-year-old Russian being burned alive inside a tank, um, has set this to uh, music and is celebrating the death of an orc when he's sitting comfortably in Kansas City or Boston. My guest today has been Cathal J. Nolan. He is the author, most recently, of Mercy, Humanity in War. Cathal, thank you so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, sir. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 